0: This is Darkness Lurks in the Redwoods, a podcast about drugs, cults, and crime in the Northern California Vista. I'm your host, River Wade. When I moved to Mendocino County from New York City, I had a preconceived notion of what to expect. I was looking forward to giant redwoods, striking rugged coastlines, Enjoying outdoor activities like mountain biking and hiking. I thought the communities would be generally friendly, hippie types who wave hello and use sayings like mindful and positive energy. Although these Northern California stereotypes are entirely untrue, it didn't take long to discover a darker side to the beautiful landscapes surrounding the area. Mendocino County is at the south end of what's known as the Emerald Triangle, an area world famous for cannabis farms. Free-loving hippies growing weed, right? Well, not exactly. I soon realized that cannabis growers owned a lot of guns, and weren't exactly best friends with their neighbors. The word suspicious comes to mind when I think of Emerald Triangle communities. And it kind of makes sense. A multi-million dollar cannabis industry that only operates with cash might attract some suspicious characters to the area. The juxtaposition of the most beautiful scenery you'll ever witness, with seedy characters roaming the lost coast, makes the Emerald Triangle unique to say the least. So, who are some of these malicious characters that hide amongst the ancient trees? That's what this podcast looks to find, to shed a little light on the darkness that lurks in the redwoods. Sometimes I feel I'm scared to live. Living is what scares me. Dying is easy. We tell young people today, drop out of school, because schools, education today, is the worst narcotic drug of all. Drop out. Uh, Tune in with natural things. People play games, friend. They lie. Pain's not bad. It's good. It teaches you things. It teaches you things. Like when you put your hand in fire, oh, you know not to do that again. Early summer, 1967, San Jose, California. A local preacher sees someone with his thumb out hitching a ride. As he eases on the gas and decides to pick up the hitchhiker, events were set in motion that would forever change his life. Bringing the hitchhiker back to his home, they began playing music, discussing philosophy, and reading passages from the Bible. The two quickly became friends. But how did all this transpire? The man picking up the hitchhiker that fateful day was Dean Morehouse, a well-educated man who studied history and theology. He was a Protestant minister, 47 years old, father of four, and husband to Audrey Morehouse. Seems like an ordinary guy, right? Well, he probably would have remained ordinary if that hitchhiker never stepped into his car. The eccentric musician looking for a ride that day happened to be none other than the infamous Charles Manson. Now, everybody knows Manson as the slick, fast talking con man that brainwashes impressionable young people, especially young women. But a 47 year old Protestant minister drinking the Manson Kool Aid seems unlikely. Yet, Morehouse was immediately cast under his spell. If you hold the negative up to the light, you don't see the light, you just see the negative. So I'm a reflection of your negative, there's no doubt about that. And I can handle that also. I've been handling, ain't I? Accounts of Morehouse and Manson's first meeting suggest the two hit it off, most likely over a bond of philosophy and the Bible. We know that Morehouse studied theology and was a minister. Perhaps he saw Manson as someone to convert. Manson probably had a similar agenda as he saw himself as a Jesus-like guru searching for disciples. One guy come up and said, I I heard you said you were Jesus. I said, "Uh, no, man, I ain't said nothing. He said, I'm glad. He said, I'm damn glad. I said, why? He said, I know you ain't here. I said, how do you know? He said, because I am. (laughs) I said, okay. Nonetheless, We know Manson stayed at the Morehouse residence, and two things immediately caught the ex-con's wild eye. A piano, which later would be given to him, and Ruth Ann, the daughter, which he would later take. We know Dean opened his doors to Manson, and invited him to stay with his family. The nomadic ex-con certainly jumped on the friendly gesture. Now here's a part of the story that seems incredulous, unless, well, you know it's about Charlie. He sees a Volkswagen microbus for sale in the neighborhood. He knocks on the door. Now imagine you open the door, and Charles Manson is there small in stature, with big, wild eyes, looking disheveled. With $25 to his name, Manson begins negotiating with the owner of the bus, and the two eventually agree to swap the bus for the piano. Dean helps Manson move the piano to his neighbor's home, and now Manson not only has a means of transportation, he also has a home on wheels and a way to live his romanticized nomadic lifestyle. A strange thing for me is the timeline. How did an ex-con become a Rasputin-looking philosophical guru in such a short period of time? And when I say short period of time, I don't mean a couple of years to hone one's craft and recruit followers. I'm talking a couple of months. Let's briefly look at Manson's history right before he meets Morehouse. Now, Manson was released from Terminal Island Prison in Los Angeles County on March 21, 1967. He'd served seven and a half years for forging a government check. When he was released, he was 32 years old. He'd spent nearly half his life in prison. I've been an outlaw ever since I was born. Just a few weeks after his release, Manson winds up in Berkeley, California during the height of the counterculture revolution. 1967 is somewhat of a mysterious lost year for Manson researchers, but we do know of a chance encounter with a 23-year-old librarian from a small Midwestern town. A young woman is walking her dog in a park in Berkeley, California. Scholarly, soft-spoken, and a bit of a bookworm, she recently moved to California to become a library assistant at UC Berkeley. Perhaps out of place, living in the Mecca of the hippie movement, that feeling of disconnection won't last long with a random meeting in the park that day. An unassuming librarian named Mary Bruner is about to become the first recruit of the so-called Manson family. April through June of 1967, Manson spends most of his time in Haight-Ashbury, where he grows his hair and plays guitar on the street corners. Most likely sleeping in public parks and crashing on Mary Bruner's couch, you'd suspect the charismatic con man was meeting lots of people and developing his guru-like philosophies. San Francisco was the heart of peace and love, as well as protest and rebellion. Acid, lots of acid, interesting songwriting, and thought-provoking parables turned out to be a successful formula for Manson to attract followers. And somewhere in a three-month window, the family began to emerge. I want to try to put myself in the shoes of a Manson follower. It's the late 60s. JFK was assassinated just a few years back. Nuclear war was very real and very scary. The Vietnam War was an existential threat that was difficult to understand. Why were we over there? Why were kids dying in the jungle? How were we to trust our government? Trust typical authoritative establishments? Why not look for a new way of thinking? A new way of living? If I want to rebel against the mainstream narrative of the day, I might want to love instead of fight, have peace instead of war. I might look at teachings of Jesus Christ with vigor and conviction. Couple that with Dionysus-like practices of free love and ecstasy. What else would you throw in this philosophical pot of anti-establishment? Oh, maybe a little acid. Sure, the new drug LSD And poof, you have the hippie movement. Now, where does a wild-eyed, acid-wielding con man fit in all this? The more I think of the insecurity of the times, the distrust of the establishment, the more it makes sense that someone like Manson might be able to attract followers. His unorthodox philosophy where time does not exist, there was no good, no evil, All human beings were God and the devil in one. Everything in the universe was unified, one the same. Death was something to be embraced because it exposed your soul to the oneness of the universe. Wow, far out, man. I mean, if I was on a long psychedelic journey with a Dionysus-like guru preaching philosophies that were mind-altering, maybe I would get on board. I'm a teenager. Maybe I'm in my early 20s. I hate my parents. I'm terrified of getting drafted and shipped off to the jungle, where I'd most likely meet my end. I mean, fuck it. Let me on the bus with the acid and the girls, traveling up and down the California coast. That's way better than guns and screaming sergeants in the Southeast Asian jungle. Just a few months out of prison, Manson has acquired his first follower, Mary Bruner. He has a good friend in Dean Morehouse, and now he's mobile. He's come into a Volkswagen microbus, which literally costed him nothing. Mary and Charlie turn the bus into a love pad on wheels, and the two decide to go on a road trip south, ending up in Venice Beach, where they meet the next family member, a talented dancer turned vagabond fresh out of high school, Lynette Fromm. Lynette was a talented dancer who performed with the Westchester Laureates, an international dance troupe located in Los Angeles. She traveled throughout the U.S. and Europe, and even performed at the White House, which might seem ironic considering she attempted to assassinate a U.S. president. But we'll talk about that later. Like many children of the 60s, a combination of drugs, overbearing parents, and rebellious convictions led her to a vagrant lifestyle, which was undeniably mouthwatering for a madman like Manson. It probably wasn't difficult for Mary and Charlie to talk Lynette into joining them on their travels up the California coast. And now the power trio is headed back to the Morehouse residence for something Charlie can't keep off his mind. Ruth Ann. Unannounced, a Volkswagen bus pulls into your driveway. A musician, a dancer, and a librarian get out looking for refuge. They're romanticizing the nomadic lifestyle living on the edge of societal norms. Do you let them stay with you? Dean and his wife Audrey did not see eye to eye on this. Dean seems to be coming under the Manson spell and the overall spirit of the 60s, whereas Audrey wants nothing to do with it. The three oddball house guests take a toll on Audrey and add stress to the marriage. She eventually goes to stay with her sister Leaving 15 year old Ruth Ann with her father and the merry trio of van life travelers. Charlie jumps on the opportunity to whisk the young Ruth Ann away from her parents, taking her on long drives to the Mendocino coast, where, according to Manson, she provided him with the most memorable and rewarding experience of his life. In Mendocino, Manson took her virginity. With a young, impressionable mind, undeveloped, looking for answers. A vessel for Manson to fill with his cocktail of sex, drugs, and doomsday visions. Ruth Ann has now joined the band, and the quartet end up at a cabin in Leggett, California. A beautiful small town with nothing around except ancient redwoods, situated just a few hours north of San Francisco. Today Leggett is famous for the tallest trees in the world, even one that you can drive your car through. Driving north on the 101, you'll come across Bigfoot gift shops and the oddly appealing Confusion Hill, a roadside attraction made with tilted optical illusions meant to confuse visitors. Perhaps Manson was creating his own Confusion Hill with his three young followers. When Ruth's mother finds out her underage daughter is unchaperoned in a remote cabin with an ex-con, she is not too happy and calls the authorities. The local police take the complaint seriously and track down the two lovebirds, with intent to return underage Ruth to her mother in San Jose. The police eventually locate Charlie and Ruth Ann and explain that her mother has reported her missing and that they'll take her home. Desperate not to lose Ruth Ann, the charismatic Manson, never shy to add a dash of drama to his antics, tells the police they will only take her by force. The deputies call for backup and eventually secure Ruth. Manson is arrested for interfering with the questioning of a suspected runaway juvenile, and on July 31, 1967, he's sent to the Mendocino County Jail in Ukiah. The police report says that Manson was telling Ruth not to make any statements as they would be used against him, and also that when she got to the juvenile hall, to just walk away and not go into the hall. Another piece of Manson's advice to Ruth was, marry some poor schmuck and you'll be emancipated. Then you can leave him and do whatever you want to do. Ruth took this advice to heart because she eventually married a bus driver and then left him to be with the Manson family in Los Angeles. After this bit of family drama in Mendocino, Audrey and Dean got a divorce. Dean transformed from a clean-cut minister to a bearded, psychedelic-looking gnome, and the events were set in motion that would lead to murder and mayhem and some of California's most infamous and gruesome crimes. There are many things interesting about this lesser-known Manson tale. You see his legendary manipulative skills at full force. So much so that in the police report it says Ruth didn't want to leave Manson, and Dean's own police statement says that he left his daughter with friends while he had to return to San Jose on business, and that police intervention was invalid. Both Dean and Ruth seem to want to be around Manson, but why? If I'd only known someone for a couple of months, would I have let my underage daughter stay with my new friend unchaperoned? Everything about this story seems hard to believe. But I have to remind myself that 1967 was a completely different time. There's a sense of innocence about the late 60s. Hitchhiking was a very normal way to get around. Communities seemed to be a bit tighter. Children seem to have a lot more freedom, and the term serial killer hasn't been coined by the FBI yet. The innocence lost, the paranoia, and the distrust that comes at the end of the 60s can easily be contributed in part to Charles Manson and the downward spiral that is to follow. Manson was actively recruiting his cult members, not in Los Angeles, but in Mendocino. In episode two, I want to dive into the cocktail mixture of sex and psychedelics that was used by Manson and his followers to attract young recruits. We'll get to know Susan Atkins and the witches of Mendocino, and we'll take a look at Mendocino's oldest cold case, the Nelson Ranch Murders. Thank you for listening to Episode 1 of Darkness Lurks in the Redwoods. Until next time. To support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash in the redwoods to sign up for as little as $1 a month. Members will have access to bonus episodes, transcripts, as well as free downloads to the original music composed for this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with just one friend. Word of mouth is the best way to promote any artistic endeavors. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, River Wade.